Okay, I have a few announcements for you guys tonight. The nursery, we have some things changing up in the curriculum and, and stuff we're going to be teaching. Um, so two weeks from today, the um, I think it's the 27th, two weeks from today, uh, we will be having a meeting after the service. So those of you that would like to get more involved with the nursery and those of you that are on the uh, monthly schedules, um, stick around for that and I'll announce it next week and the week after. So just keep in mind that's going to be coming up. Christ Community is doing uh, a skit. It's the everything skit. Um, if you guys haven't seen it, it's it's awesome. But we need a guy available. If you if any of you guys are available, um, we need a male to help out with that. And um, if you think you could talk to Autumn or me or um, just someone else um, that's up on stage tonight um, about it, and they'll be able to tell you um, when we practice and and when we're going to get set up. And it's for uh, Easter weekend. So if any of you guys could help out with that, it'd be great. Um, free market is coming up in late April, April to May. Um, if you guys don't know what free market is, it's basically this um, big event where uh, we give, um, we take donations, uh, whether it be clothes or toys or whatever, um, and then we'll give it out for free um, to those in the community that that are in need. And so uh, it's a really great um, giving event thing. So if you guys would like to start uh, making donations and stuff. Um, we'll be taking those. Uh, if you want to donate clothes, it's just mostly um, gently worn or new clothes. So don't like bring in old raggedy things that no one else would else would wear. Give it something um, that you would you wouldn't mind having yourself, um, and that'd be great if you could bring those donations. Um, if you guys would like to get involved with some, some small groups, we have um, usually one after Rev. Stephen leads that um, on Mondays. We have uh, college Bible study. Um, Tuesdays, Stephen is teaching uh, at the Rev House, and then um, so if you guys want to get plugged in, we have uh, contact cards right outside here, and that'd be great to get you guys plugged in. Um, great for growth spiritually. Two more things: um, there's a men's retreat coming up in a couple weeks, the 20th and 21st of March. Um, it'll be here at Christ Community. It'll be a Friday evening and Saturday morning thing, and uh, it's a men's retreat. Um, so only men, sorry, women. Um, but it's going to be about $40, so if you guys are ha- going to have trouble paying that, and there's some scholarships available, we'll be able to help you out. Um, but it's going to be a really great thing for guys. And uh, baptisms are coming up around Easter weekend. Um, so if you guys are thinking, if you haven't been baptized before and you're thinking about it, um, we usually just do them once a year here, and so that'd be a great time. I know we've already got a few lined up, so it'd be great to get you on schedule, and um, it'd be great guys are thinking about that, um, see Dave or Ryan um, about that. And, uh, oh, shoot, I didn't think of anything for tonight. Um, let's introduce each other and just say our favorite colors. Um, and I know it's kind of lame, but I'm kind of lame. So let's just get up and greet each other. Favorite colors. What's up, Revolution. Whoa, whoever did that shriek, that was impressive. All right, um, I know Kelly just talked about it, about that men's conference on March 20th and 21st. I cannot stress to you guys how much that I really, really want you guys to be there. And by guys, I literally mean guys. Like you said, it's a men's retreat. I'm going to be there. Ryan's going to be there. It's Friday night, and, or Friday evening and Saturday morning. It's not going to take up like your whole weekend. It's not going to take up uh, a ton of your time. Uh, we really want you to be there, and I'm going to be there. And this is a sign-up sheet for it. And I'm, yeah, I want you guys to witness this. I'm going to be there. 
right? And it's, it's 40 bucks, um, but if you don't have 40 bucks, I just talked to Rick, uh, come anyway. We, we will hook you up. So we want you there that badly. Please come. And man, they're getting extensive. They want to know my social security number. That's a joke for those of you guys uh, who don't know my sense of humor too well. Uh, we will steal your identity uh, here at Revolution. Uh, we don't have much money, and we have bad credit, so we need yours. Um, <laughs> all right, so like Kelly said, the college is on spring break. And I would, I would ask you guys to do this with me, because like, they make me super nervous whenever they go away. Like, seriously, like, you ever, like, leave a dog in your house, like, whenever you're going on, like, vacation for a week, and you know you're just, like, rolling the dice, like, you can come back, and everything is just destroyed. That's how they make me feel. They're a bunch of sinners, right? Like, <laughs> like a bunch of pagan... I don't know what, like, the beach is just an evil, wicked place. I feel like I'm going to turn into that conservative guy. Like, I just think everything's a sin someday. Um, But seriously, be praying for them while they're gone. Um, For for the ones who are Christians that go to Revolution, that they remember that no matter where they're at and what they're doing, that they're representatives of the kingdom of God. Um, And for those who who come here that aren't Christians, um, that God would just keep his hand on them and that they would be safe and not make bad decisions, right? Because we all know spring break, rum spring up, right? All kinds of terrible things happen. No one knows what rumspring is. It's not spring break. It's what the Amish do. Anyone? I got one dude. I'm from Minford. We know Amish people. Whatever. Um, so since they're gone, we decided to do something a little bit differently uh, this week. And we're going to do uh, Ask Pastor Dave tonight. And it's not like freestyling. You guys aren't going to pepper me with questions. Like whenever like a politician goes to answer questions, like the real thing is like, who's ready to ask questions that I'm prepared to answer? Right? That's pretty much what I decided to do this evening. What we did is... Um, I fielded some questions from people um, or questions that I get asked pretty regularly, um, and we decided to go ahead and pick four of them um, and, and, and hit them with you guys this evening and then see what I have to say. And I think that this is going to be uh, a pretty good time. Um, some people have asked some really hard questions. Some people have taken this um, as an opportunity to try stand-up comedy, though, instead of asking me hard questions. Like, we see this on my Facebook status. What is the best way to get a jelly stain out of a white shirt? That was my brother-in-law. How do I do question 12 on my homework? What color is the dress they've been showing on TV and Facebook? And what is your favorite sin? Like, why is that a question? I don't think Sam is here this evening. Is, worship, is it worshiping an idol if I talk to a poster of the original Red Ranger? Why is that? Like, there, uh, what else do we got? We saw, should all Christians practice Lent? No. I thought this was Ask Pastor Dave. <laughs> like, like, that was awesome. Like, I laughed so hard when I read that. And then uh, my buddy Chris Beal, who looks like, uh, like the old pictures of Jesus, um, he sent this to me. Does the doctrine of the closed hand and open hand fall into the closed hand or the open hand? <laughs> that, these, I was dying all week. Like, no one could give me like, a serious answer. It was just ridiculous all the way around. All right, but, uh, but you guys have asked the questions, and I'm going to do my best to answer them. We're going to look at these questions this evening. Uh, one, why did God allow the fall of man? Uh, two, is drinking alcohol a sin? And that's going to be fun. Um, three, what is repentance? And four, does the Bible teach once you're saved, you're always saved? All right, so these are, this is going to be a good time. And I'm going to do the best that I can to, to, to tell you as, as little of my opinion as I can, although some, some of it is going to be my opinion. Um, I'm going to do the best that I can to ground everything that I say in Scripture because that's the real authority over all of us. 
Um, if the Bible doesn't teach it, then we shouldn't believe it. Right? So I'm going to do the best I can to do that. And I want you guys to know this. Uh, we talked about open hand and closed hand last week. Closed hand being things that affect the gospel. Open hand things uh, being doctrine that, that aren't core to the faith, but that we need to know what we believe. Um, the things we're talking about this evening, um, some of them may have gospel implications, uh, but they are, for the most part, completely open-handed. So please leave some room for disagreement on this. You don't have to line up exactly where I'm at on these questions. Uh, or on these answers. These answers are are just where I'm at right now as a student of the Bible. Um, So feel free to study, right? I encourage that. Read your Bible. See what you think. Be diligent in Scripture. Uh, Don't let me spoon feed you, right? Because God knows there there are enough Christians that just let preachers that don't know what they're talking about just shovel crap into their mouth all day long and they eat it, all right? But let's do this. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't like televangelism very much. That's all that I can think about. It's just garbage. Um, Let's do it, man. Oh, God help us. Why did God allow the fall? This is going to be a good one. And what I'm talking about is the fall of mankind, right? Why did God allow sin to enter the world and chaos to enter the world and and all this stuff? I get asked this pretty, like, every couple of times a month. Why did God allow sin to enter the world and all this bad thing, all all this death and all that? Um, So this is a really tough one, right? But let's consider some stuff first. God is omniscient, right? That means that he knows everything. Uh, Isaiah 46.10, God says, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish, right? So God knows what's going to happen before it happens, and if God knows it, then it must happen, um, or he's not all-knowing, all right? So God knew the fall was going to happen. He knew mankind was going to rebel against him. He knew that Jesus was going to have to come and die, that many would go to hell, and that some would be saved, so why did he allow all of that? Why did he allow sin to enter into the world? Um, I, I, would, I would want to kick the can back further before we answer this question. Why did God create at all? That's the question that I want to answer before we go on. Why did God create at all? Simply put, to display his glory. The Bible, it's a resounding message. God does things for his own glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Isaiah 6.3 says, They were calling out to each other. The angels were, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So why did God create? To receive glory from it. Even us, right? We were made for the glory of God. We're, we're his image bearers, right? So, so what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that your job is to point to the one that you're representing, right? To his glory, to give him glory. So people look at us and we say, don't look at me. Look at God the Father, all right? So now, now know this. I said all that. Uh, God doesn't need glory from us, right? So God does everything for his glory, but he doesn't need glory from us. Um, He didn't need to create us, right? God was totally cool before he made the earth or anything else. He was totally cool, Father, Son, and Spirit, Trinity, perfect communion, perfect love, receiving glory from one another for all of eternity past. They were cool. They didn't need to create, but they wanted to. um, Because, like, God wanted glory. (laughs) I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself a lot. Um, And he deserves glory. I've talked about this a couple of times before. God is completely unique, Right? He is the one, capital O, the only one who can desire glory and not be a narcissist. Right? Consider this with me. Um, if God is the strongest, the, the all-knowing one, the omni-omni, right? the everything, um, then there is nothing that we should give glory to other than him because nothing can compare to him. Right? He is the unique one. He is the highest and the only one that actually deserves glory. 
And so in addition to creation uh, being for his glory, right, and God doing all things for his glory, I think that everything, and I'm going to catch some flack for this because I understand the pushback. I think that everything that comes to pass, period, ever, gives God glory. Everything, right? Romans 11.36 says this, For everything comes from him, this is God, and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Right, so everything gives God glory. Um, Even bad things that happen around us. Right, death, people dying gives God glory. Um, natural disasters, all kinds, of, all kinds of things that we would consider bad give God glory. Whenever people do evil things, it somehow, in the end, it all will give God glory. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, and I understand the pushback against that. And we can talk about that after the service. I just, it would take too long to address, to do that right now. Um, but why would God allow the fall then? If everything is to his glory, why did he allow all of the death, all of the sin, all of the chaos, all the rebellion, hell, all of this stuff to happen for his glory? This is maybe something you've never heard before. This is one of the most beautiful concepts, I think, even though it's hard pill to swallow. All things happen to the glory of God. Consider this. God is just. He is holy. He is love. He is light. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is patient. He is all kinds of things that the Bible calls him, and he desired to be glorified us for who he is. All right, that's what he wanted. And by allowing sin to enter the world and allowing us to rebel against him and ultimately sending Jesus, it's in that that he receives glory from us for all that he is. Right? Consider this. Whenever God punishes sin, how does he receive glory? How does he receive glory from someone going to hell? Um, he, he's shown to be just, that sin must be punished. He's shown to be a righteous king. He's shown to be a good judge. He's shown to be a good God because you cannot be good if you are not just. He's shown to be holy because he hates sin. It can't be in his presence. It has to be punished, right? So whenever someone is judged for their sin, punishing sin, God is shown to be those things. But whenever someone receives mercy through what Jesus did on the cross, dying in our place for our sin, God is shown to be love. God is shown to be merciful. God is shown to be gracious, right? Even allowing, this was kind of cool for me to think about, even allowing Satan to oppose him, God shows his supremacy, right? I'm going to let you, you do all you can, Satan, right? Take your best shot at me. I am unbeatable, right? So he wants to display all of his attributes, right? And, and consider this too. How can God show himself to be the savior and redeemer that the Bible calls him if there is nothing to save us from? Now, I know this is a hard pill to swallow. I, I get it, right? But I'm convinced that the shadow proves the sunshine, right? You can't know light if you don't know darkness. So This is how God decided he would receive glory, is by allowing all this stuff to happen. Um, And we know that because this is what has come to pass, right? And God always does what's best for his own glory. And and, and furthermore, I think that we ask this question. Um, I think we ask this question because in our hearts, uh, we think, I could have created a better world than God, right? Anyone else like that honest? Gonna we, no, I'm the only one, whatever. I'm the only sinner in the room. Um, Right? I think that we ask this question because we think that the world, would, like the world would have been better if God would have never let sin in it. That, that complete perfection um, and no hardship, no death, no sin, no justice, no judgment, that that would have been a better world to live in. We think that that would have given God the most glory, and that is arrogance. That is sheer arrogance to think that. Right? that. That is to say that we know how to do something better than God does. 
God, I think I know how you should get your glory a little bit better than you. I know you say you're omniscient, but I got one up on you, right? I got this one figured out a little bit better than you. Um, essentially, what we're doing is we're calling ourselves all-knowing and not wanting God to be God. Um, that we've outsmarted God in a way that he should receive his own glory. Um, I'm not saying that it's sinful to ask this question, but I, I wonder if that's the root of our heart whenever we ask this, that we think we could have done it better than God. Uh, but all in all, I think that we should glorify God in his decisions, in all of them. Um, even when we don't fully understand why he would do something the way that he decided to do it, we need to cling to the fact that the Bible calls him good and righteous and just in all that he does, even if we don't get it. Because that is faith. Um, so that's how I would answer that question. All right, was that heavy enough for you? Is everyone good and uncomfortable? Right? No? Okay. All right, so let's switch gears to something uh, a little bit less weighty, in my opinion. Uh, this is a fun one for me. I get asked this all the time. Is drinking alcohol a sin? Do you feel the tension in the room? More so than why did God allow the fall? This is incredible. Right? And what I wanted to say, and I'm going to say it because it made me laugh when I thought about it. Is drinking alcohol a sin? I hope not. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's <laughs> all right, this is, a, this is a big one, right? We live in the Bible Belt. Um, God help us. Right? Usually, like the caricature is, it's the godly, suit-wearing conservatives. I'm eyeing Scott Rawlings in the back as I say this, because he's looking good in his suit tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Um, he looks better than me. I look like white trash, like three-quarters of the time. He looks good every day. Right? But it's like the... <laughs> but it's, the, it's like the godly conservatives, right, with the King James Version Bible, right, that are rolling around. So those are the ones who say no, right, and they're the godly ones. And it's the pagan liberals with their gauged ears and tattoos on their legs, wearing shorts all the time, that say it's okay to drink alcohol. <laughs> Amen. Again, I'm getting... <laughs> I love you, Scott. Um, but for me, where I land on this question, is it a sin to drink alcohol? Um, I think it can be, all right? But not necessarily. This will be fun. All right? I think that very few things in and of themselves are inherently sinful. Very few things are inherently sinful. Um, it's almost always an improper use or uh, an abuse or making ultimate of a good thing that makes something sin. That's usually what it is, right? For example, sex is a good thing. I haven't always been a Christian. Um, and I'm getting married in July, and I'm, I'm pretty pumped. I say that all the time. I want you guys to know just how excited I am. Abstinence is uh, going to be a thing of the past. I'm pretty pumped. Uh, and sex, sex is not sin, though, right? In the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, God has given us sex, right? It's God-honoring. It's a God-given pleasure for us when used appropriately, right? The same goes for money. The same goes for possessions and food and medicine and all this stuff. Um, all of these things are good when they're used appropriately. Um, they're gifts from God for us to enjoy and, and use to his glory in their proper place, right? But what about alcohol? All right, the Bible talks about wine all the time, and I don't like wine. I'm not French. I'm an American, right? This is America. I'm from Minford. I feel like I need a Budweiser trucker cap. Anyway, that's not beer for the record. Like, that stuff is just yellow water. It's, no. Uh, but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about alcohol? It refers to wine all the time. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7 says, So go ahead, eat your food with joy, and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Uh, Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says, you cause, it's talking, talking about God, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, 
wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. Right? And there's tons of other passages we could have gone. Uh, but if the Bible says it once, I feel like that's enough, and we don't need to back it up a million times. Uh, but the wine is viewed positively in a lot of places in the Bible. It's viewed as a gift or a blessing uh, from God to us that we're to enjoy um, if we choose to and thank Him for. Right? Timothy told Paul, or Paul told Timothy, um, to drink a little bit of wine for his stomach for medicinal purposes. We see that the Good Samaritan in one of Jesus' stories used wine as ointment. Right? It can be a really good thing. Um, and at this point, right, someone's going to say, but the, the wine from the Bible doesn't have alcohol in it. You ever heard that one? Show of hands. Wine in the Bible. Yeah, this is real good times here. We're going to see how much that doesn't make sense. Um, the biblical word for wine, all right? There's a couple that are really frequently used, um, and I'm probably going to butcher how you actually pronounce them. The Hebrew one is yagen. I think that's how you say it. I don't think, yeah, whatever. And the Greek one is oinos. I think that's how you say that too. Um, now, here's what's funny. In the book of Genesis, we see that Noah was drunk on Yagin, right? And then Psalms tell us Yagin is a gift from God. In the New Testament, we see Paul telling us in Ephesians not to be drunk on oinos, and we see Jesus turned water into oinos, right? So no matter how you slice it, there is alcohol in all of it, right? At least in those two words. Um, how much alcohol can be debated, right? Because the wine we have now is a lot stronger, most likely, than the wine they had then, uh, but it was in there. Right? You could get drunk on that stuff. Right? You could get drunk on biblical wine. Not that it was ever cool, because the Bible is what speaks against that. And we're going to check that out. The Bible also talks negatively about alcohol. It gives us a lot of warnings about it, actually, like a ton of warnings. Um, we're going to look at two. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine produces mockers. Alcohol leads to brawls. Those led astray by drink cannot be wise. Ephesians 5, 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, we could do a ton of scripture. There, there's a, a huge chunk in the, in, the book of Psalm, or in the book of Proverbs talking about, like, don't even look at the wine when it's red, talking about like a, what a drunk or an alcoholic would go through um, on a daily basis. Right? And we could do more scripture if we wanted to there. So what do we have? What we have is that alcohol, um, alcoholic beverages have been given to us by God, um, and God has also warned us about them. So what are we going to do? Harmonize it. Don't ever forget that. Whenever the Bible says stuff, you have to attempt to harmonize all of it. That's what we, our goal is whenever we read Scripture. Right? So when the Bible speaks negatively about alcohol, it is always referring to the abuse of alcohol, not the drink itself. Right? It doesn't tell us not to drink. It tells us not to overconsume, not to abuse a good thing that God's given us. Right? Just like with money and jobs and sex and all that stuff, um, these things can be abused and they can be made sinful. Right? But that doesn't mean we abolish sex, do we? No one? I thought that was funny whenever I wrote that down. Um, right? We're not going to say that it's wicked to sleep with your spouse. That doesn't make sense. We're not going to say it's wicked to eat McDonald's, although it will make you sick. Um, right? Don't make a good thing an ultimate thing, I think is what the Bible is telling us here. Use it appropriately and use it to the glory of God. Right? We glorify God whenever we are obedient to Him and enjoy the things that He's given us to enjoy. Um, but I think that we should use wisdom in this. Right? If you're an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic or you have ever had a problem where you can't just have one beer or one glass of wine or whatever the beverage it is that you want to do, if you can't just have one and call it a day, don't drink ever again. Ever. Ever again. Bars are not for you. Right? None of that stuff. Right? Ever, ever again. Because the Bible tells us not to be mastered by anything. That we're supposed to be sober-minded. Right? And that, and if you get drunk, I think you're really, me and Ryan talked about this once, you're assuming how the rest of your night's going to go. 
You don't know if you're going to get a phone call that someone needs your help or someone's going to start a conversation with you and you're going to need to be able to share the gospel with them. You're assuming too much about your day whenever you get drunk, right? You're assuming that God's not going to have you do anything else for the rest of the day, right? Which is stupid because we don't know that, right? So if you have an alcohol problem, don't ever drink again, right? If you're underage, listen to me. If you're underage, obey the law. Romans 13 says that we are to submit to the government, right? Obey the law. And in the United States, as dumb as we might think that it is, if you're not 21 years old or older, you can't drink alcohol here. So if you break the law, you are sinning. Don't you dare go home and say, Pastor Dave said that it was okay for me to start drinking if you're not 21. That is not true, all right? Public service announcement, parents, if you're listening to the podcast, it's not what I said, all right? And everyone else, to the rest of us, the Bible says not to make a weaker brother stumble. If you know someone, that you're around someone and they think it's wrong to drink alcohol, don't drink. Period. Don't, don't be a stumbling block to someone who thinks that it's wrong. Don't make them violate their conscience, or their, their conscience by doing something and offending them unnecessarily. That's just be, be a good brother or sister in Christ. Right? So like I said, I'm not telling you to go drink. Uh, but if you're of age and you want to, use wisdom and have self-control and do it in a God-honoring way. Don't abuse a gift God's given you. So that's what I have to say about alcohol, and I'm looking forward to getting some emails later. Um, yeah. Um, the next one that I, I, I got asked, and this is, this is, this is pretty cool. Um, what is repentance? Right? We've all heard the word repent. How many here actually know what it means? Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> I had to look this stuff up too. Right? There's a lot of different answers that we're going to get for Repentance. Um, usually we're going to get something like, uh, you know, being sorry for what you've done, asking God for forgiveness, praying a prayer, right, raising your hand in the back of a church, whatever, um, asking, God, asking Jesus into your heart, accepting Christ, making a decision for Christ, all these things, people say, that's what repentance is. And uh, usually in, like, that kind of a context where, like, they want you to, like, say the prayer, there's usually a dude up here where I'm at telling everyone to, like, bow their heads and close their eyes and raise their hand if they'd like to make a decision for Christ. And me and Ryan talked about this. And we can never do that at Revolution because Ryan's a peeker. <laughs> he was telling me about growing up, and they'd be like, I want every, uh, every head bowed and every eye closed. I see that hand back there, and Ryan's sitting in the back going, no one raised their hand back here. <laughs> right? So we can't ever... <laughs> We can't ever do that. Ryan's a peeker. So don't, uh, among other reasons, we won't ever do that to you here. Um, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Um, but these are things that we hear whenever people say, what is repentance? Um, and I think that they're, th- those aren't the right answers. I think that they're parts um, of the whole, but that those aren't the whole answer. Um, over and over again in Scripture, right, we see God telling people to repent. Um, And it's always a command that comes after a person, a nation, or a group uh, being told that they've offended God, that they have rebelled against him, that he's given a command or he's told them to live a certain way, and they've essentially spit in the face of a loving God who only gives commands, it's for our benefit, and they've offended him eternally, and then God says, repent. You've sinned, repent. But what does the word repent even mean? And this is, I like to nerd out. I love learning like Greek and Hebrew words, which I can't read ever. Um, But I I think it's really cool. Um, The the Greek word for repent is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. This is super cool. I thought this was awesome. It means to change your mind, to acquire new thinking, to reorient your thinking about something. So what the Bible is actually calling us to do on a regular basis is to change our mind. I thought that was just really, really, really cool. So in regard to salvation, this is the command given to all people in all places by God to change our thinking about who Jesus is. 
right? To go from a mind set against Jesus or, you know, neutral to Jesus or apathetic towards Jesus or neglectful towards Jesus and change our minds to be people who acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, and the Lord of our lives. That's what the Bible is actually telling us to do whenever it says to repent. Change your thinking about who Jesus is. But again, that's not quite the whole answer either. Um, A true change of mind is going to result in faith. Um, It never just stays as a mental acknowledgement that, oh, you know, I think that Jesus is is the Savior or whatever. Um, It it, it results in genuine faith, and I've talked about it a lot. I'm not going to beat it to death. Um, Faith is loyalty, trust, and hope in Jesus Christ as Savior, right? Like, I have faith in gravity, right? So I'm going to be loyal to that fact, and I'm not going to walk off of a building and expect to live, right? I'm going to trust that what goes up must come down. Right? And that's what my hope is going to be whenever I like jump off the stage later. I don't know what I'm saying. Right? But like that's, that's, what, that's what it means to have true faith, to truly believe, is to, re- to orient yourself around that fact. Um, and this kind of change and this kind of faith only comes as a result of hearing the good news about Jesus, that he died in your place for your sin and you don't deserve it and you've done nothing but rebel against God your whole life, but he wanted to show you love in sending Jesus to die in your place for your sin and being completely broken by our sin, right? Coming to a place where we hate our sin and we hate ourselves for committing that sin and then desire forgiveness, So there should be an element of sorrow that comes with this change of mind, with this repentance. And Paul agrees. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So we need to be broken by our own sinfulness and and desire to change our mind. Um, And and this kind of brokenness, this kind of hatred of sin and self, this godly sorrow and change of mind has to result in a change of life, or you've really not changed your mind. in Acts 26, 20, we see Paul says, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things that they do. In Luke chapter 3, we see John the Baptist saying, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Right? I, I think too often what happens is, is that People think that repentance is telling God you're sorry and saying some magic words like come into my heart or please forgive me for my sin. They think that that's what repentance is in and of itself is paying lip service to Jesus and feeling a little bit sorry for what you've done. In reality, true repentance is a complete change in how you view yourself, how you view your sin, how you view Jesus and a resulting life that proves the change in your convictions. That's what true repentance is. It must bear fruit in your life. It must change how you live, right? And these changes are how you live, how you talk, how you work, how you love your wife. Everything that you do now submits itself to your renewed thinking that Jesus is Lord and that he has saved you. Um, And this repentance, too, um, this is pretty cool to think about. This isn't just a one-time thing, right? There's initial repentance that secures your salvation in Jesus. um, And then there's a lifetime of daily repentance that follows, Right? If you don't believe me, check this out. Romans 12.2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Right? You guys may have heard the, it's more frequently quoted, be renewed, or hold on, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? This is daily. This is a constant transformation. It's saying, be transformed. This is an ongoing process. We never stop repenting. We never stop changing our mind because we're never going to stop battling sin until we die. 
So this is a constant changing of mind. You may not realize that something you're doing today is sinful, and six months down the road, you're going to read something in the scripture, you're going to hear something preached, and be like, man, I need to really change my thinking about how I'm doing this because it's wrong. It's a constant repentance. Right? So repentance is a change of thinking that results in true faith, hatred of sin, hatred of self, godly sorrow, that, that produces a change in your life and that reflects the change in your thinking. It's not just a prayer, and it's not just saying you're sorry. All right, so... I don't know how to transition in between these things. Like, anyone else feel awkward right now? Am I the only one? Am I a little bit red-faced? I know we talked about drinking. I, I haven't had any, but my face feels red. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, so this last one. All right, this last one I get asked pretty regularly. Um, are, once you're saved, are you always saved? Right? Is the salvation of a believer secure? Right, and I get this one all the time, and it is super unpopular around here to believe that, that you can't lose your salvation. And apparently, I'm a magnet for controversy, so yes, I believe in the eternal security of the salvation of believers if they truly have come to faith. Um, but before we get into, and I understand some of you here might have a problem with that, because um, I get pushed back on this all the time, that I believe in eternal security, that I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. Perseverance of saints, preservance of saints, whatever you want to call it. Um, I get it. But before we get into the problems that people have with this doctrine, um, let's hit why I believe it. Um, and there was a ton of stuff. I actually had to whittle down a lot of scripture that I wanted to use because I didn't want to bog you guys down with a ton. Not to speak ill of the scripture. I can give you more if you feel like that this isn't sufficient. So please come see me if we still disagree uh, at the end of this. But John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, we see Jesus saying this. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So what does Jesus say? I give them eternal life. Right? They will never perish. No one, right? And some people will say, well, what about you? You're, you're no one, right? You're, you're a one. You're a person. No one, that's you and your mistakes, can take them from me. Jesus is saying that these things are set in stone. This is how it is. They've been given to me. I lay my life down for them. They hear my voice. They're mine. I don't lose sheep, is what he's saying. He is the good shepherd. Right? And then we see in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, and 38 and 39, we see this. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chose them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having, having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Verse, or verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is beautiful. Amen. I don't know who that was, but I appreciate that. This is, this is very near and dear to my heart. Right? So what do we see Paul saying in the, in the first bit that we read? It says that God chose his people in advance, and who he chose, he drew to faith in Jesus, and whoever comes to Jesus has been given right standing. That God, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you have right standing 
right now. It's in stone. You, God views you as righteous, even though we know that you're still a sinner. In God's eyes, you are righteous because he has given you Jesus' righteousness. And whoever has the righteousness of Jesus will be glorified, will go to heaven, will go be with Jesus. This is all in stone. And then what does he go on to say? Nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing can separate us from God through Jesus Christ. You are a thing, I might add. Nothing. That's the pushback we always get. What about you? Can you do it? Are you a thing? Yes, you are. Are you in creation? Because he says nothing in all of creation. Were you created? Yes, you were. So nothing can separate you from the love of God. God will not let you go. Period. I know I'm getting a little bit more amped on this one than the other ones. This one's really, really, really near and dear to me, and you'll see why in a minute. Romans 3.25. This was the nail in the coffin for me, and we're going to read the English Standard Version one of this. He's talking about Jesus, and Paul says this. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now what I want you guys to to notice, the word propitiation. That's a big church word. Anyone anyone ever heard of that one before? It's a big old church word. We'll throw it around sometimes without even explaining what it means. Propitiation means one who satisfies the wrath of God. What does God have wrath for? He has wrath for sin. What does the Bible say that Jesus was? For those of us who believe in Jesus, that trust in him for our salvation, Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, the complete satisfier of God's wrath for us in our place. So if Jesus satisfied all of God's wrath for us, that's our past sin, our present sin, and the sins we will commit in the future, Jesus was the propitiation. If he did not die for all of it, I argue he died for none of it. If he was not fully the propitiation, then he was no propitiation at all. All The scriptures are just overwhelmingly in support of this view. Once you're saved and you have truly come to repentance, right? It's kind of funny how we talked about repentance before this. It's like I was thinking ahead. Once Once you come to genuine repentance and faith in Jesus, it's done. How else could Jesus on the cross say, it is finished? How else could he say that unless he actually meant it? And I don't think Jesus blew smoke, right? That your salvation is sealed. It is unshakable, right? But the pushback that I get on this all the time. But what if you do this huge sin, right? As if there's like a differentiation and like this sin is damning and this one's not. We're not Roman Catholic, right? We think all sin is equally damning. Um, What if you do this huge sin? What if you really rebel against God, right? Like you have sex with someone you're not married to or or you're, you're drunk or you're a drug addict or you decided to get high or you're addicted to porn or whatever it is that you've done. Jesus was the propitiation for that too. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, whatever mistakes you might make in the future, he paid for all of it, right? And then I'll get pushed back again. Um, Well, what if you don't ask for forgiveness for that sin that you committed before you die? What I fear you're doing then is you're making your prayer a work for salvation to keep your salvation. Right, as in like mouthing a couple of words like, Jesus, forgive me for that, like right before you get hit by the bus is somehow going to like save you, right? Like I, I don't get that. That's a work. That's saying that I must do something or God won't forgive me apart from faith in Christ. That doesn't make sense to me. You know, um, like I said earlier, it's not just saying a prayer or mouthing some words or paying lip service to Jesus that, that brings about forgiveness. It's true faith in what Jesus did, not what you do, but what he did on the cross being the propitiation for your sin. And this is always a funny example I like to do. This is, this is good. Tell me if you've heard it. Um, 
Romans chapter 13, we talked about in the, the alcohol question. It says to obey the law. Now, I like to drive. Um, you see where I'm going with this? Anyone like to drive fast? Like Ricky Bobby? I want to go fast. Um, now, <laughs> consider this. If speeding, and, and God help me, I don't speed as much as I used to. I'm working on it. Um, but if you're going 56 and a 55, you're breaking the law. And according to the Bible, you're not submitting to the government. You are sinning whenever you speed. Yeah, you're all, everyone deserves hell in this room. We all speed. Right? Let's be real here for a minute. That, that seriously is a sin against God to rebel against the government and, and, and break the law. Right? So my question that I always like to ask people whenever they say, you know, uh, I believe you can lose your salvation. Um, if you, you're, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, yes, I am. Yes, I am. If you get in a car wreck doing 56 and a 55, are you going to hell? Right? Or like, no, that's stupid. Why? Because God's not going to send me to hell over speeding. I have faith in Jesus. Ha! Right? Like, there we go. We got the same thing. Right? (laughs) What I'm getting at is God is not dangling you over hell with a thread waiting for you to mess up so that he can cut it. That's he's not doing that. If you have true faith in Jesus, that is not you. And my question is, where is the love in that God? Where is the love in that? I want you guys to know this. You are his child. He holds you close to himself. Without knowing that God holds you so close to himself that he won't let you go for anything, nothing that you'll do can ever make him stop loving you. How can you have that perfect love that casts out fear that John talks about? How can you have that? How could you be willing to go out and lay your life on the line to share the gospel, knowing that you might sin while you're doing it and die before you can say your words of, of repentance? How could you go out every day and say, I'm willing to lay my life out. Whatever comes, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. Why wouldn't you just hole up in your house and just do your best not to sin? Right? Let's be real for a minute. How can you have the guts to go out and do anything if Jesus is not there with you every step of the way? If Jesus is not the one holding on to your salvation, that it's not about you, but it's about what he did. How can you do anything with any kind of bravery? You know, and, and I think this, I think that the belief that you can lose your salvation turns your life into a life of fear and sin management because of your fear of hell. Whenever instead, it should, we, it should be that we hate sin because we love God, because God has loved us and sent Jesus to pay for all of our sin. Think about that. We should hate sin because we love God, not because we don't want to go to hell. We should hate sin because God hates it and we love him. And we want to be like him. You know, love is the more powerful motivation. Right? Didn't Yoda say something like that? <laughs> right? Like love is the more powerful motivation of the two, of fear or love. I'll take love every time. Now, I know we get a bad rap for this, right? Those of us who believe that you can't lose your salvation. Uh, we get called licentious, which is a big word that means that, that we, like, sin all the time, which, I mean, everyone sins all the time. But, like, we're okay with it, and we just do whatever we want. Uh, we get called carnal. We get called worldly Christians. Um, some people say uh, that I believe that you can live however you want and still go to heaven when you die. That's not true, right, at all. But, you know, for a lot of people, that's fair because there are a lot of dumb people that seriously believe this doctrine. um, And then they think that they can live however they want and that they're still saved. And that's because they don't understand the biblical repentance that we just talked about in the last question. They don't understand. Um, They said a prayer when they were seven years old and they think they're good to go. And I'm here to tell you, that's a lie straight from hell designed to trick people into thinking that they're saved when they're not. The sinner's prayer 
can be a trick for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's inherently wrong, but a lot of people think that they said some magic words to Jesus and now they're good to go because once you're saved, you're always saved. I said the prayer when I was six. I'm good, man. That's not true. Right? Those kinds of like Christians, right? they may say that they believe, but their lives and their love of sin prove that they don't. Right? Romans 6, 1, through, 1 and 2 says this. Well then, right, talking about like nothing, like, like Jesus loves us. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Right? So, so the people who ask this question, right, shouldn't I just continue to sin, you know, just to show how much more graceful and merciful God is to me? Um, they prove that they're not dead to sin. They're clearly not because they want to continue in their sin. They still love their sin. They don't hate their sin. They've not had that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Right? And, and, and I'll hit you with this. I'll go down one more rabbit trail. Um, some, would, some would still say this, and this one is real for me. Um, what about someone that you know, right? Your grandma, your mom, your best friend, whatever. Um, person X who used to believe and left the faith. What about them? You say that once you're saved, you're always saved. What about that person? Um, I say this, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. So they were not with us to begin with. And, and we're going to go down another trail in just a second with that. They weren't with us to begin with. They didn't believe, not really anyway, not truly, right? Don't, don't forget this. You can be deceived. I can be deceived. I don't know uh, if some of you in here are actually Christians or not. You may tell me you are, but I don't know if you are. I can't see your heart. I don't know if you believe. I can't walk around you every day and know how you live to see if you're keeping in step with your repentance. I don't know. Um, people can seem to love Jesus and it just be a mask to cover their hearts. Right? You can come to church every week and still go to hell. You can read your Bible every day and still go to hell. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. Um, so there's that, that they weren't Christians to begin with. They really didn't have faith. Or there's this. Um, or the people who left the faith, right? They may be in a season of rebellion, a rebellious state, and God will bring them back because Jesus doesn't lose sheep. I think that's your other option. Maybe they're in a season of rebellion and God's going to bring them back. Bottom line, we don't know until the casket shuts, period. If someone dies outside of the faith, then we know that they were never saved to begin with because of what John said. If they make their way back, then you know, maybe we can say that they were saved and that they were being rebellious and God brought them back. I think that those are our two options, but we don't know. We're not God. We can't see people's hearts, and we don't know until they're dead. All right? But I'll tell you this too, that's not a call to laziness, right? Whenever we know someone left the faith, oh, God will bring them back if they want, right? Because James actually tells us in chapter 5 of his letter, um, you know, go and and hunt them down, right? Go and and go after people who have left. Go after brothers who have left the faith. He tells us that. Um, So we should pursue people who have left. We shouldn't just leave it and say, you know, God will bring them back. We're called to actually go and pursue them. But I said all that to say this. I also believe this doctrine that once you're saved, you're always saved uh, because of experience as well as Scripture. Um, not, that, not that Scripture needed validated with my experience. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that for me, I've experienced it. Like I said, love is a greater motivation than fear, 10 to 1. 
Um, I, used to, I used to try to be a Christian. I used to try to be obedient strictly because I didn't want to go to hell. And I grew to hate God because I thought that he didn't love me. He just wanted me to be really good, and it made me hate him. I didn't know the love of God because I thought that he was dangling me over hell, wanting me to like mess up, just waiting for it, man. Just say the wrong thing. Lose your temper one more time. But now, because I know the difference, because I know what the Bible teaches now, I love God and I want to obey him because I understand how deep his affections are for me. Right? I know that he, he's not going to let me go no matter how badly I mess up. That's love. Right? Nothing can shake my salvation because it's all about Jesus and his perfect life and his perfect work on the cross. Right? The fact that I was a sinner, I was spitting in God's face, and you're all doing the same thing too apart from Christ. And that even though we hated him, God would send his son to come and die in our place as a substitute for us. That he was perfect, even though we're not. And that through faith in Jesus, he gives us his perfection whenever we stand in front of God to be judged. Christ is our righteousness. I can't be judged on my life. I'm judged on Jesus' life now. That's why my salvation is secure. So if you guys don't know anything um, about Christianity or you want someone to, to talk to you more Right? I, I really want to invite you guys to, to come and join in this love and this experience of a God who's not going to let you go in spite of what you've done or what you're going to do. I would invite you to, to believe. Believe the good news about Jesus, that he died in your place for your sin. And if you want someone to explain that more to you, come see me after the service. So we're going to have a couple people over here by the couches whenever we play music. They want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. We want to tell you more. We want to explain all this to you better. Right? But believe. Repent. All that said, I'm glad you guys asked questions. I really am. I I had a lot of fun with this, right? So what I would encourage you to do um, is keep asking hard stuff, right? And and keep searching the Bible for answers. Like I said, don't let me spoon feed you, speed foon you. Um, It's all in there, right? The answers that you're looking for, most of them, not all, I'll be honest with you. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions because we get information on a need-to-know basis in the words of Tim Keller. And there are some things that we don't need to know, Um, but it's all in there. God's word is truth, right? Get in there and go after it, right? So now here in a minute, we're going to take, take some time. We're going to worship our King Jesus for all that he's done for us, for saving us and keeping us and giving us his word that we can live by and, and gain wisdom from because right? he's worth it and he wants his glory. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your word that you've given to us so that we could know you better and so that we could know how to live, um, so that we could live lives that honor you and give you glory like you made us for. Um, God, it's my prayer here that, that we leave here encouraged that you love us, that we live here or leave here encouraged that, that you've died in our place and that we're righteous in your eyes because of, of what Jesus has done for us. Father, I pray that you put something in us that makes us want to search your scriptures for, for answers, that we want to search your word for, for how you want us to live. God, put, put a fire in us that, that makes us not want to stop, that makes us just want to know more so that we can apply it to our lives in wisdom. But God, above everything, thank you so much for sending Jesus to die in our place for our sin because we didn't deserve it, and yet you wanted to do it anyways because you are love. I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand.